to another Movie Scramble podcast interview special. On today's programme, I am joined by director and cinematographer Steve Johnson. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing good, mate. Yes, how are you doing? I'm all right, yes. Lockdown's a funny thing, but I seem to be surviving. It, it comes and goes in waves. Yeah, but... a, a bit like lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so, yes. I think my mood shifts with what tier I'm in at what, in what particular day. So Absolutely. I think I'm in tier, tier 7 today, I think. So. <laughs> so today we are here to talk primarily about your feature film called Convergence, which is currently available on Amazon Prime. Now, this is a film from 2019. Obviously, you are the director and cinematographer, as well as, I'm, I'm sure, many other roles within the film. The film stars Jeremy Theobald, Nicolette McEwen, Lee Fanning and Alfie Wellcote. Could you start by giving us a little bit of background as in what the film is about? Okay, well, Convergence is basically the story of Martin, who is a successful writer who is struggling to come to terms with the death of his wife and young child in a car crash. And he meets the character of Lily, played by Nicolette, at a bereavement counselling meeting and starts to then question the circumstances around his his wife's death in, in, in the car crash or whatever. So really the, the, the premise of the film is, is to really question, do we control our own lives or, or is there like a higher being? You know, so that that was kind of the the premise behind the film. Okay, one of the characters that you you didn't mention, and I don't think it's really giving anything away here, is the strategist. Yes, the character played by Marcus McLeod. Now, obviously, yeah. said that it's it's questioning whether we are sort of not we're not ruled by a higher being or destined by a higher being, but there's some sort of influence there. Could you tell us a bit about why you included? This character now, without that character there, it's still a very strong drama. But with this, it gives it an extra element. It gives it this sort of, oh, it's not a supernatural element, but it's, it's something no. more ethereal, if you like. It's, it's not totally grounded in reality because of this character. So can you talk about that character a wee bit? Yeah, no, so, so the strategist is, I suppose the concept of that is, I mean, it comes down to that whole Mr. Fate and do we make our own decisions? And, and you know, the story is told from, I suppose his perspective to a degree, plus with the move, he, he tells the story through chess pieces, which I always thought was a very symbolic type of way. You know, it's a very structured game chess. So, and to a degree, I suppose life is almost structured as well. So being able to to take from nature, carve these chess pieces, and as the chess pieces move around the board, then this influences what the characters are doing in throughout the story. So, yeah, is it, some people have said, is it God? Is it, is it not? Is it, you know, is it fate? I suppose the great thing is I don't need to, whatever the audience chooses to make that character. It was, it was, it was just a nice way to come away from the main characters and come away from the, the structural drama of, of the film and just give it something that I don't think has been done many times before in cinema. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. It's a nice touch because it it changes the the form of the drama. You can see that there's been an awful lot of thought put into the fact that you're wanting to expand it past uh, 
I wouldn't let's just say straightforward, but that's kind of the, 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 the sort of the genre. That's a straightforward, almost searching for an answer piece, but it is grounded in reality. So I, I thought that was particularly good. Um, it was very planned from the beginning, you know, in terms of, I mean, the opening shot of him in the forest, whatever, uh, and, and hearing the voices. So it sets up that there is that, that supernatural element to it and then take it from wherever you want to go. But, it, I mean, it was very planned. It wasn't a, I suppose... It was a way that got us out of maybe one or two sticky situations in the edit, which was, oh, these two shots don't go together. What can we do? Add, you know what, we'll go to the B-roll footage of Marcus and there's some great stuff in there and we'll throw that in. And it just happened to, to it, so it got us out of a couple of editing holes here and there. But, you know, it was a very, very planned character in there. And I think, you know, from for a character that, and I'm not giving it really anything away, he doesn't actually speak mm-hmm. any time during the film. Yes. And there are certain times within the film, again, without giving anything away, that there's a reason why he's called the strategist and not an omnipotent yes. being, because he doesn't puts things together, but he doesn't control what's going on between certain characters and things don't always go the way that an omnipotent being would handle these sort of things, if you like, because it's not straightforward. There are a few wee twists and turns and a few wee shocking moments in it as well. Yeah, and, and, and it's been interesting that people's reaction to that character, you know, we've had people that say, I just don't get why there's a character that doesn't speak all the way through, mm-hmm. all the way through to, you know, other theories about who that character actually is and what he represents. So the great thing is it got people talking and for any filmmaker, if people are talking about your film in any way, then and are questioning it, then that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't do any harm, does it? So with regards to the, the film, this is obviously your second feature, I believe. Yes, second feature, um, yeah. Yep. So how long did it take from conception of the idea behind it and uh, right up until the sort of the, the beginning of production, basically the whole pre-production phase? I'm assuming it was a number of years that this took of your time to uh, get this in motion. It was less time than it took me to get my first one made. My first one took me about 15 years from the idea, from the initial concept. So I would say when I was when I was filming my first feature, which was called The Students of Springfield Street, I'd already started formulating ideas and, they, you know, post-it notes flying all over the place. So I would say probably 2016 was when I probably sat down and started writing it uh, fully. And I think we went through at that stage, I think we were on about four drafts. And then actually we started to film in 2017, in February 2017. And when you're doing productions with literally no money, you're always up against obstacles. And the biggest obstacle was, you know, we were losing locations and things like that. And mm-hmm. I think for, for some filmmakers, they would say, do you know what, we will make the best of what we've got and it will be what it will be. And I took a different approach and said, no, this we're losing too many locations. And tr- we're trying to do everything ourselves, you know, with a very small crew. Let's just stop. So we actually stopped in, a, I think it was March 2017 which was very, very frustrating. And I really wanted to try and get some elements of seasons in there that starts in winter and, and, can, and carries forward through till summer. So we stopped. And unfortunately, then the person who was playing the lead uh, dropped out and we had a couple of other casting issues. So we ended up spending the better part of 2000, 2017 
you know, kind of recasting things and going back and finding locations. And we added in, I think, about another 12 versions of the script between then and when we actually did start shooting, which was February 2018. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, obviously, during the, the writing phase, a lot of writers have people in mind when yeah. they are putting something together. Did you have people without, well, I know that obviously this is now set and everything, but did you have people in mind when you were uh, putting this together in terms of the, the type of person that you wanted or particular people that you wanted? Absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the advantages of being a cinematographer on other people's projects is you get to meet a lot of actors and you get to, to see how they work and whether they suit into certain roles. So people like Nicolette, I'd worked with being a cinematographer on other projects. The same with Lee Fanning. So uh, Alfie Wellcoat. You know, so some of those I've been working as a, as being a cinematographer. So some of those roles were written for for those people. So Lee Fanning was was the first person I went to, and to be honest, the only person I went to for Dominic to say, look, this guy is not a very nice person. And Lee's like, no, that's fine. And and you know, as as, ba- as bad as what Dominic is on screen, Lee Fanning is the nicest person you could ever meet. You know, he 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 literally took the the character of Dominic. And I remember he turned up when we when we were filming 2018. He turned up on set and he had his hair the way that he had with this Mohican type thing, whatever. And I was like, oh my god! And he looked at me and he was panicked. He was like, is it all right? I'm like, that is brilliant, <laughs> you know. And I would just never have, have thought of things like that. So so people like Nicola, it was written for Nicola. It was written for for Lee specifically. And then the casting, you know, evolved. I mean, Jeremy's character. Jeremy was actually meant to be playing the character of Robert, who was the publisher. That's what Jeremy was originally going to be. And it was through a conversation on another project that Jeremy and Nicolette were working on that I was shooting that the suggestion was made, well, you know, Jeremy would be quite interested in playing the role of Martin. So we had conversations. And despite Jeremy having done what Jeremy's done in the past, I still auditioned him with Nicolette and we went through lines and yeah, I eventually said, no, absolutely fine. This is a slightly different version of the character that I envisioned, but Jeremy came with, I think it was seven pages of notes, six, seven pages of notes on the script and the character and what have you. So, which then informed the other 12 versions of the script. (laughs) Okay. Well, makes sense. Was that custodian? The film that, that was Custodian, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Which is actually listed just after Convergence on IMDb, but has it actually yeah, been no, released? It was, no, it hasn't. No, it's it's still going through post. That, that we, we had to do shoots, and, and technically we filmed that before Convergence, and yeah, it's still yet to come out, whatever. I think they're doing some visual effects or something like that at the moment. So hopefully that will be out soon. So. The main character, obviously, is, as you said, is the character of Martin. Now, he is a very buttoned-down character, and he's obviously, I think he's pretty much in everything in the film. I think there's maybe a few scenes where he's not. So, obviously, his performance, Jeremy's performance, and the the role itself, the way he tackled it, had to be sufficient that it held the audience for the yeah. the runtime. So, was that something that you worked with with Jeremy, or was that just all off the page and from the notes that he he gave you back? Uh, no, I think it, 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 was a bit, it was a little bit of everything. There was some stuff that was on the page, you know. So, you know, he has his breakdown at the beginning, but 
you know, I, I, when you when you get an actor who's who's worked on things, you know, for you know, for the likes of Chris Nolan, he, he, he understands where you where you're trying to come from. And, you know, Jeremy came in with an approach of this is how I feel I would be. And I was like, yes, that's how I would see that. So the, there was a dialogue before we started filming and during that that informed that performance all the way. You know, a lot of it was out of sync. So obviously we didn't shoot everything in in chronological order. But I think by the time Jeremy got over the first few days and got into his it, it, it got into his footing, or whatever, he was he was absolutely fine. And. You know, he, he he pulled out some amazing performances, especially. I mean, it's it's not an easy watch. It is a very emotive film. There is a lot of emotion in there. And, you know, as a director, you, you've got to say to your actors, what, how do you want to prepare, whether it's music or, or what have you, and, and, and give them that time to get into the headspace because that's what, you know, gets that performance. And then give them as many takes as you need, as they feel they need to deliver that performance as well. You can see that that's come across on the screen. So in terms of working with actors, obviously you've worked with actors for a long time in terms of <clears throat> uh, being a cinematographer. Yeah. How do you approach working with them? Now there's a couple of obviously different directors have different approaches. Some are very hands-on, some let them do what they need to do, follow their own methods and everything like that. So how do you go about working with them and rehearsing with them and everything like that? I think it's it's, it's kind of understanding, you know, their approach. So for me, it was it was always with, certainly with Jeremy and Nicolette, you know, what what do you feel you need in order to pull the performance? This is what the scene tries to give. This is what I'd like to to get across to the audience. Here's what you're thinking at the beginning. Here's what you're thinking at the end. Here's the words. But again, we're not precious with the words. If there's a, there was always, if there's a better way to say something and it feels more natural, do it. At the end of the day, we're going to record them all the takes. So if something doesn't work, it doesn't really matter. No one sees all that stuff. People only see the good things. So, you know, we, we, we did rehearsals on some of the key scenes, certainly a lot of the dialogue scenes with things like the cafe. And there's a there's a scene where there's a long, long take of them walking and Martin's character is giving some backstory uh, stuff, whatever. So some of that stuff was uh, was rehearsed and some of the walking stuff was. But then some of the stuff like Nicolette's character when she she, she has a moment of a, of a breakdown after returning back to Martin's flat, that 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 performance is most of the words are there, and then Nicolette just embellished and just got herself in that mindset for where the character was and produced a phenomenal performance. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I did notice that in some scenes between the main two characters, it was shot in a very particular way. There was, I think it was a, a point where they'd actually gone out for something to eat and you, you shot it through glass so yes. that you got all the reflections from the streets and everything and passing cars and all that. Could you sort of talk me through why you you took that approach? I've got a, kind of an idea why you did it, but I'd like to hear what you actually uh, um, thought about when you were doing that. Well, well, I, I well I can tell you for that, that for that one scene we actually shot five there was five different setups so yes we, we, the first thing we did was I stood outside a cafe and we shot through the window and we got singles on both of them because then it would be easy to cut so and then you got the nice reflection and then we went inside and we got some similar shots but from behind and to be honest they just weren't as dynamic as the shots of the reflection and I think the reflection kind of adds 
more to the world behind. Uh, so that was the first instance. The other instance is because inside the cafe was running some of the chillers and we couldn't switch off the chillers. <laughs> so actually the dialogue was in, in that entire scene is actually ADR. That's the only scene I think we ADR'd in the entire film. So actually it was better to be outside and play with the ADR than try to clean up the stuff from inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but but the whole the whole film was was planned to be shot in a certain style in itself. So if you notice everything with Martin and Lily throughout the film is all handheld. Yet when you get to the point of the strategist, everything is controlled and steady. And you know we used a tripod and a slider and things. Uh, apart from one scene with the strategist everything else is is controlled so again there was that frenaticness of adding energy to the entire story through the cinematography did the the choice of color palettes play a a role in that as well because there seemed to be a difference between colors that were used during the strategist sequences and during the sequences with martin and lily they seemed to be quite muted a lot of the colours when it was just those two, or was that just to reflect the change in seasons, like you mentioned earlier? Um, some of it was seasons, some of it was mood. You know, we, we, we maybe pushed the contrast a little bit in the stuff with Martin Lee because it is the, there's, there is tension there, you know, in terms of the subject matter. So I can't say, I, I think the, the, the strategist stuff was a lot warmer. And again, that just added to the calming feel with that. But when you're you're running around with a camera and, you know, grabbing shots and it literally is all handheld. I think that the coolness of some of those other shots kind of adds into that style, which, you know, I built up for for, for the way that I was going to shoot the film. You mentioned earlier your first feature, Students of Springfield Street. How did working on that prepare you for going ahead with moving forward to Convergence? I always say that the Students of Springfield Street was kind of my, my film school. It was it was really the first thing, the first film that I'd shot. And, you know, there's no better way than throwing yourself into doing a, a 90-minute feature film like that. And, you know, I, I think I'd learned a lot. You know, I was working with a with the cinematographer, Tom Dobby, on that one. We shot with two cameras on that. But, you know, I'd learned, I'd, I'd made my mistakes with that, whatever. But, you know, I mean, that, again, was a film that was based around performance, 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 probably because, you know, of the types of films that influenced me. I like those character-based films. And also, you don't want to try and do something that seems like it's a $100 million film on a budget of, like, well, for students, was four and a half grand. So you've got to work with the constraints and the means by which you have access to so I'd say it helped me make a lot of mistakes, but it helped me wrap my head around certainly how I was going to approach Convergence, which was done on a on a budget less than what we shot students on. Obviously, your your film has been out there for a while. It's done the festival circuit and has now landed on Amazon Prime, which is no yep. mean feat, I must say, because there's an awful lot of competition out there for getting content out there. So obviously, yep. it was... It did very well, the British Independent Film Festival. How important is things like film festivals for getting your, your name out there and getting your product out there? I think it's important that every every film stands on its own two feet and it's its own film and it's rights, whatever. You know, that you're not just making a film as, as a calling card. There's got to be a purpose for the film to exist. So 
but yes, getting a, fi- a, a film into a festival is, is no mean feat. Getting a feature film into a festival is even harder than, I w- than a short, I would say, because you've got you the festival can show less features than they can shorts. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, if you've got a 90 minute feature film, potentially a festival could choose to show six or seven shorts in the same time period. So it's got to be. You know, it, it it's harder to get that in, but when you do, it's about picking those right festivals that are going to help get the word out. I think outside the main festivals of like, you know, Sundance, Slam Dance, Rain Dance, Cannes, or all that. I mean, those are the bigger ones. So you've got to kind of look at what is the subject matter of the film and where do we think it can perform. And you know, you, for every festival you get in, I think it's probably safe to say that most filmmakers get rejected from a good 40 festivals for every one that they get in. And and for Convergence, that was that was so much the same. So certainly to have our premiere, our world premiere as part of the British Independent Film Festival, to be in London, which happened to be at Cine World on Leicester Square, again, was no mean feat. It's, it's kind of a nice thing to say that you had your world premiere in Leicester Square in London as part of the British Independent Film Festival. Oh, and by the way, we won Best Feature Film. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. You, know, you should get that put in a T-shirt or something. Exactly. There's a lot to go in a T-shirt. But, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know at the same time, you know, Jeremy was nominated for Best Acting. Nicolette was nominated. Uh, Alfie was nominated. The Cinematography was nominated. And again, that's been reflected on some of the film fest- other film festivals. You know, the United States Film Festival, I think we, we won Best International Feature Film. And the Antaka International Film Festival in Turkey which was the end of last year, we won the special jewellery prize. And on the back of that, I've just been asked to to be part of the international jewellery for that. So I've been watching, you know, the international films from this year, which has been interesting. So I think it's important to, to get that out there. And I think you're always as good as your last film. And if getting more film festivals, you know, winning things like that help, then then that can only be a good thing. Cardiff was an interesting one towards the end of last year. That was kind of the big one that we all attended. Me and Jeremy went along to that. And that was an interesting one because we were up against films that had a far bigger budget. I think there was one film in there that was funded by the BFI for like, you know, 1.2 million, something like that. And I remember on the night we were at the dinner and they were showing the the, the films that were nominated no, and I turned up to Jeremy and I said, that's the one that's going to win. And then they called Convergence out. So, you know, it's not necessarily all about certainly the budget of the film. It's what the people judging it deem as being an interesting story. And is it entertaining for them? When you're watching films, especially so many films at a film festival, you tend to hone in on the films that have the, the, the kind of grab you more than anything yes. else, rather than how much money seems to be up on the screen. You can help. You yeah, can watch I mean, a film it, it, that's it, only a couple of thousand and costs a couple of thousand. It looks like it, but it's a fantastic film just because of the people involved. Exactly, exactly. And I think if they're given a performance and 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 you're invested in those characters, you're going to feel you're going to feel more connected to that film than than maybe other films. I mean, that's that's kind of my outlook. But you know, it's it's not done bad, and it has certainly helped us. You know, we 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 got a BBFC certificate, did a limited theatrical release, albeit it was only in Glasgow, but it was there. And you know, and then submitting it and getting it onto Amazon Prime, it just means it's out there. If people can watch it and it's a reference, and if they like it, then that's great. You know, happy to talk about it. And if they don't, again, that's fine. But you know, that's art for you. It's subjective. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I take it this will be your sort of main calling card going forward, the fact that you've got I, this film and it's done so well and it's, it's out there for everybody to watch. It must be quite heartening that you can go into, especially when you're trying to raise funds, that you can use this film and say, well, look, this is what I am capable of doing, obviously with the your team around you and your actors and everything but it must be quite yeah. gratifying no I, th- I think it, it's a good way to say hey here's what i can do with virtually no money imagine what i can do with actors and characters and locations and things like that when i'm not having to do the catering and and, and all <laughs> that at the same time and i can just hone into doing what you know of, of you know of being a filmmaker imagine what i can do with half a million or a million yeah. or something like that you know so yeah Obviously, things that elevate films. I've I've watched an awful lot of short films and low-budget films over the last couple of years. And one of the things that really makes a difference is the soundtrack to a film. Now, mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. case, you had Paul Wilkie doing yes. the soundtrack for your film. And I've did a wee bit of research, and it's the first feature that he was involved in. He's done a number of shorts in the past. When was he brought into the process? Was it quite early on, or was it later? Well, I'd worked with Paul on, on another project a while back. So we kind of knew each other. And I think early on, I'd said, I'd had a conversation with Paul, and he was up for it. I said, you know, look, here's some tones. Here's what I'm thinking. But to be honest, it was, and so we had an idea, but he didn't really hone anything until really the edit was was kind of locked. So it, this was an interesting one because I, what I did is I, I I like to edit where I know there's got music. I like to edit with with stuff that represents the feel and tone of the music. Now, this can be a very dangerous thing to do if you take music from, say, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Gone Girl or something like that, and you put it in, you start getting used to it. But I'm lucky I can divorce myself of that and say, I know I'm not going to do this, but here's the tone of it. And I cut to that. And by the time I could give the film then to Paul, he had a, a really good guide track all the way through of what was needed. And from that, it was then he would do some stuff he would time it out. He would send it over to me. Actually, all the music was done over Skype. Yeah, I can so, believe that. You know, we, we, yeah, we, we were never in the same room apart from when I think I drove to his with the final version of the film. We sat there and we just reviewed it as a final as a final output. And that was it. Everything else was done via conversations. He'd send me the cues. I'd cue them up. I'd go back and give him notes. So I think... In terms of any uh, any of the cues, I think we did probably six versions of any one, you know, at any one time, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, there was six ones for each cue. But then again, some of the stuff he would do, it was like, it doesn't work for this. But you know what, Paul, it will work somewhere else. And then we would adapt that going forward. So it was it was really quite organic in terms of that work process. But yeah, it just goes to show what you can what you can do remotely, even before lockdown. <laughs> yes, yeah, of course. You said yourself it's it, to do with the, the temp tracks, obviously yeah. setting the tone. Are you in a position where you're a, a bit musical and you're able to expand on that or was it all really just based Absolutely on the, the temp tracks? Yeah. Absolutely not. I do not have a musical note in my body, but I know what I like and I know the type of style. So for me, it was about going mm-hmm. and looking for 
you know, I'd, I'd listened to a lot of soundtracks, whatever. So it was about, oh, yeah, that's kind of the tone in there. And then I would, you know, I would, I'd have calls with Paul and say, yeah, it needs to be some fluty type thing, whatever. You know, it's it's this thing. It goes like, you know, like this. And Paul mm-hmm. would kind of latch on and goes, right, OK, I think I know what you mean. And then he would play something. I was like, yes, that's it. Or no, can we can we make it deeper or something like that? But. You know, it was I, I, I said to him on the outset, I would push him. And I think Paul would totally admit that I did push him mm-hmm. um, for a, a feature film of 97 minutes long. I think there's 90 minutes worth of music in there. Yeah, you can see that there's an awful lot of music in there, which, yeah. as I say, it makes it makes such a difference to. But music is the emotive connection. Music yes. is the emotive connection for the audience. You know, you've got the actors are given a performance. You're seeing the visuals. You're hearing the sound. But the music on things like that is what helps that connection to the audience in my eyes. So it was important that we have that all the way through. Unlike when I did students, I think on again, on a film of 90 minutes, I think there was like six minutes of music mm-hmm. of that, whatever. So, again, that was kind of a lesson that I kind of learned going forward. I kind of <laughs> went from one extreme to the other. Well, it, it certainly worked. Definitely did. You have obviously got a an extensive background as a cinematographer as well as a director and you have worked quite closely with a number of Scottish directors and Scottish production yep. teams uh, notably Chris Quick and yep. his production team obviously you've been heavily involved in the two autumn films uh, just 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 the one autumn film autumn oh, was never it just dies. the one Right. Okay. It was Sorry, just my, the one. Yes. No. It's, yes. So is that obviously you you developed a relationship with Chris dates back to I think yeah. it's 2014. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Around about then. Yeah. So was is that something that you enjoy doing as well as directing, or is it is it just it's just something that comes naturally because you're almost like sort of part of a collective, if you like? Well, look, I think the the, the Scottish independent film community is small anyway, and we all know each other. And I think it's just, you know, some people like working with some people, some people like working with others, and that's great. You know, yes, you know, Chris is great, and Chris has worked on a couple of my things, and, you know, I've worked, I've, I've, I've helped him out. And I think, but that's just the, the independent Scottish mentality of filmmaking here. We're all here to help each other out. You know, more recently, I've been working with uh, Gary Hewitt on some of his pro, on some of his projects and his shorts. And, you know, again, that's a, that's a, another relationship that that has kind of grew but I think working as a cinematographer with other directors also helps because they know I'm a director so I'm always looking at it from multiple angles as well because mm-hmm. my job as a cinematographer is to get the best images for them but you know if you have a good relationship you can suggest things and say well okay yeah that's great do you know what we could do this and maybe it's something that they hadn't thought of and it's so it's it's just that that organic collaborative I suppose outreach that we that we all have as as being independent filmmakers. So mm-hmm. yes, that's obviously very true. I spoke to Chris Quick and Andy McEwen with regards to Autumn Never Dies a couple of weeks yes. ago, and they they did mention that you had very big impact, especially on one scene where they were. <laughs> uh, struggling with regards to being able to film a sex scene and you came up with a, yes. a very a very novel way of doing it which they obviously uh, Chris was quite open about 
they were just ready to scrap the scene altogether before you pitched in with the idea. And like you say, it's all part of the collaborative process. So you must feel quite comfortable yes. doing that. And I take it that's all just because you've built up relationships with these people. You have worked with them for a long time. You know yeah. your strengths and they know their strengths and weaknesses as well. So it obviously helps everybody. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, that, yes, I mean, that, that scene in Autumn Never Dies was, you know, Chris was just like, no, look, we can't do it. I'm like, I tell you what, just get, just give me five minutes. Let me just try something. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And we came up with doing the silhouette thing. And I've got to say, I, I, I don't know how we managed to get through that with uh, with the amount of laughing in there. And, you know, Nicolette was a really good sport on doing that as well. But that was just so, it was so funny just watching the playback of that. Yeah. But, yep. mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and being able to have that you know that, that camaraderie to, to to start just to make suggestions it's the same way that you know when we did convergence some of those guys were making suggestions to me mm-hmm. you know and and that's because all we want to do is make the end product the best that we can do you know it's hard enough to make anything let alone not getting being able to get funding so making anything is is an achievement but you want to make the best thing possible you know whether that's acting whether that's cinematography whether it's music whether it's sound I, I will say i've worked with numerous sound people and we always have an argument of which is more important which has 51 percent uh, more important is it picture or is it sounds and the sound guys will say it's 51 percent sound and the picture guys will say it's 51 percent picture which can mm. always make for an interesting discussion but again you know it's be having people you can trust so you know for convergence it was working with Scott Walker that I've worked with Scott numerous times before that I didn't have to worry because he did all the re- virtually all the recording on on set and then he did all the post sound work and all I needed to do was turn on to Scott and say are you happy and so long as I was happy with picture and performance and things like that if Scott was happy with sound you trust him Absolutely. So obviously we are in a very sort of strange situation now with regards to film productions and the fact that very little is being made. Do you have plans? How have you been spending your your lockdown in terms of Uh, have you been writing uh, stuff or what have you been doing? I've been frustrated, um, <laughs> as I think a lot of us have. Yeah, I think it, it, it was nice at the beginning, I think, because it was unique. And I think the more that it went on, it was it was just you could you just had to find a new routine. I mean, you know, when we first went to lockdown, I, I was doing homeschooling with with my kids anyway. So that was kind of what I was focusing on. And, and you, yeah, we were watching films. We would have movie nights and things like that. You know, so we were, my daughter was starting to get into the Marvel film. So we ended up doing a, a marathon Marvel event of watching them in chronological, story chronological order, which which was fun. But, you know, out with that, yeah, been trying to, I, I, I wanted to do some short films this year. And unfortunately, they were all knocked on the head and we decided it, it wasn't the right time to do it because of the way I wanted to shoot certain things, we would, social distancing wouldn't be possible with some scenes. And I don't think it's fair to put actors in that situation unless, you know, you are, unless it's a bigger production, things like that. So yeah, basically this year got slated totally off. A lot of the the stuff I was due to shoot as a cinematographer uh, got moved through to next year as well. So yeah, bit of writing, bit of reading, bit of research. I've been staying on top of technology and looking at new ways to work from a production standpoint as well, certainly with lockdown. So, yeah, nothing for this year. Hopefully, hopefully next year will be 
will be a better year let's let's put it that way okay just a, a quick final question then in terms of your background and your inspirations who were the the people who inspired you to move into cinematography and direction over the years it obviously could be anybody at all well look i mean i i, I grew up in the era of the 1970s and 80s films whatever so you know george lucas gave me my childhood through star wars the you know the original trilogy you know and i grew up with that whatever and to be honest it wasn't until the early 90s that i decided i wanted to get into filmmaking and then i went to college and that was a bust because we had teacher strikes and things like that. So you can I, I I was kind of that era of of you know the Tarantino era and the Rodriguez era of you learn by watching the DVD extras and things like that. So I suppose early on those types of directors and as, as you start moving into the 2000s and what have you, I would have said you know people like David Fincher I think inspires me. Obviously the films of Chris Nolan I think uh, are, you know Chris is a huge influence I think in terms of filmmaker I think because he does so original type of stories that type of thing and Steven Soderbergh certainly because he is similar to what I do as in he he directs, he shoots, he edits his own stuff. And so I think those are probably the biggest influences to where I am certainly now. It's cool, yeah. It's a fairly formidable list. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a few, so, but, you know, it, it, it's yeah. learning by DVDs. I mean, I never went to film school. I never went to university. I, I literally picked up a camera. And, and, and to be honest, the cinematography stuff came about purely because I'd you know, I'd bought a red camera and, you know, then I was getting offers of hires and things like that. And then I started getting involved in the teaching element for red. And, you know, I thought, well, I'm teaching people how to, you know, get a good exposure on the red camera. I might as well go out and do that. And and it was just a means to an end. So, you know, that's kind of how the cinematography element kind of kind of came into that. It's always interesting to hear the, the different approaches that people have to getting into the industry and what, why they're kind of driven. You do get some like yourself who get into it because they're purely interested and they, they've gone down the sort of self-taught route and everything. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's excellent. Just in closing, just like to say thank you very much for coming on. Your film is thank you. absolutely fantastic. I would urge anyone to go and see it. It is, again, once again, Convergence is available on Amazon Prime. And if you've got nice things to say about it, then obviously leave reviews for it on IMDb and Amazon. And obviously, Steve, people can get in touch with you through your, your website and stuff and yes. let you know what they think about it i take it you've had a number of people doing that anyway oh yeah no you, you you i've had a fair amount of you know you get the odd emails of you know oh how did you do this and what have mm. you and I, I think some of it actually in all fairness comes via the jeremy route because obviously jeremy had worked yes. on a, a little low budget film with uh you know a certain chris nolan very early on and th so there've been there's been certain similarities in terms of of the approach and the budget and things like that but you know Chris filmed on film, we did on digital, each have their pros and cons, you know, mm -hmm. so, but it's always nice when people email you to say, oh, by the way, I love the film, whatever, and I love this aspect, and there's always something different, so it's always great to hear. Nice, so that's really good to hear that you're getting positive feedback, and not just hate mail that everybody else seems to be getting at the moment, because <laughs> people have got too much no, time. No, well, not yet, whatever, either, either <laughs> that or the hate mail goes to my spam, so. <laughs> oh, well, that's good, it's always a good thing. So, once again, thank you very much for your time today, I really Thanks appreciate you me. coming yeah. on the, the podcast, and all the best with your future endeavours. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. All Thanks. right.
Cheers.